five years ago, I wrote an article for the Folger Shakespeare Library's Shakespeare and Beyond blog talking about theater etiquette then and now in Elizabethan era and today. And I came across Dr. Kirsty Sedgman's book, The Reasonable Audience, Theater Etiquette, Behavior Policing, and the Live Performance Experience. Kirsty, is it fair to call your new book on being unreasonable, breaking the rules, and making things better a sequel? <laughs> uh, either that or a nervous breakdown, depending on who you ask. <laughs> Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 867, on being unreasonable. Dr. Kirsty Sedgman's new book on being unreasonable, breaking the rules and making things better, examines our age of division and how we can be unreasonable for the right reasons. Dr. Sedgman began our conversation by explaining how her new book is a natural continuation of the work that went into her first book called The Reasonable Audience, Theater Etiquette, Behavior Policing, and the Live Performance Experience. Absolutely coming out of my decade of research into audience behaviour. But what I've realised more than anything from studying audiences all these years is that audiences, live performance audiences particularly, have always been a kind of early warning system. Because when we see in the auditorium at live performance events, frustrations and divisions beginning to erupt there, pretty safe bet that we're going to start seeing it everywhere. So I wrote The Reasonable Audience, that was back in 2018, which was about theatre etiquette, and I was going, um, guys, something is happening here, and I think we need to pay attention. And then lockdown hit, and the world exploded, and I realised I had so much more to say about how norms of behaviour and ideas about what is right and wrong, reasonable and unreasonable, and how we draw those lines as a collective they were unraveling in every part of public space. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, and it, it, it's, it inspires so many questions. The, the first one of which is now that audiences, theater is having a hard time attracting audiences still. And I'm wondering what that's portending. Well, partly it's absolutely not the case that we're in a post-COVID landscape. We're obviously still living in the middle of the pandemic. Right. And we had that early surge of hope. I know I did here in the UK that maybe we might be able to reconsider the rules of togetherness within every aspect of social life and to think about actually what we want a better, more livable world that centers human justice and climate justice, what that might look like. I really felt like there was this sense that we are in it together and we have a chance to make things better. And then definitely here in the UK, that sense of camaraderie and togetherness that we saw early on really did fall apart. So my book is trying to wrestle with the complexities of our 
divided age. Well, and I and and I haven't read the book, but it seems to me that there is it there is value in being unreasonable. Under the guise of reasonableness, there's something maybe not right about that. Absolutely. And of course, I was writing this at a time when in Bristol, the Colston statue, I was here when it got pulled down and thrown in the harbour. I write about that. And I was there a few months later at the subsequent Kill the Bill protests. Mm. Because the government decided largely as a reaction to that incident to crack down on our civic right to demonstrate in public space. Yeah. I was there watching a police car be set on fire, feeling that warmth. And I write about that in the book. And what I interrogate in chapter five is that narrative, that enduring narrative, whenever anybody starts to protest about any kind of injustice, the narrative spins them into villains, disruptive influences, selfishly right. taking away from that social contract or seeking to dismantle it rather than people who are potentially fighting for the rest of us. Fighting for the rest of us and questioning some of our ba our, our basically accepted ideas. And maybe these accepted ideas are not themselves reasonable. Absolutely. And to bring it back to your question about theatre, this is absolutely what we're seeing in the yeah. cultural industries as a whole. Because what fascinated me and why I started studying this in the first place is that at the same time as we've had the rise of what in the UK we call the relaxed performance movement, it's also been called the extra live performance, which is spearheaded by amazing people like Jess Tom, the Tourette's hero activist and performer, who in her show Backstage at Biscuitland talks really movingly about how as someone with Tourette's, with physical and verbal tics, she finds it impossible to force her body into that model of normative silent reverence that's so expected. Mm. And the unreasonable pain when she was asked to sit during a performance where she told the audience and the performer that she'd be there and assured she'd be made welcome, the venue still asked her to sit in the sound booth for the second half because an audience member had complained. And she talks about how that seemingly reasonable accommodation caused her deeply unreasonable pain mm. and we have this relaxed performance movement that is trying to think about people with different kinds of needs but also alternative preferences for the kind of experience that they want maybe not silence at all but a more active form of call and response yeah. and at the same time we've had a crackdown by those more traditional audience members who we know from a plethora of data are overwhelmingly, not all of course, but overwhelmingly white and economically privileged and middle class. We know that those audiences are more likely to have then been part of the pushback to say that, well, all audiences are getting increasingly badly behaved. Not me, of course, but these other people. We need to retrain them. We need to reinstill that norm of reverent, complete silence and stillness. So I'm interested and I take seriously both sides of those debates, yeah. but I'm interested in how we can weigh up these competing needs and practices and how we can do that without acknowledging that some people are just being selfish assholes who are coming to events going, well, I 
don't care what anyone else wants. I just want to get drunk and sing along tunelessly and have a good time, even if it annoys and upsets everybody else. So how do we weigh up this kind of moral quandary and arrive at something that might be collectively more reasonable than we might arrive at on our own? I love that distinction, uh, and, and and that could have well been uh, an alternate title uh, on being unreasonable, not on being an asshole. <laughs> the last thing we need is more entitled, selfish narcissists who feel that they should be able to do whatever they want, no matter the consequence to anyone, anybody else. But we also, I think, need to pay close attention to where these norms of behaviour came from in the first place, who they were designed to privilege, Mm -hmm. and who gets excluded as a result. The relaxed performance movement is also alive and well here in the states at least i know i did i did a performance of the of a christmas carol at the goodman theater last season uh, where i played scrooge and we had an audience of um a non neurotypical if that's the phrase uh, audience members who some who di- who didn't or couldn't sit quietly all the time and it was great it was phenomenal. It was more in keeping, according to my understanding, it was more in keeping with a performance 400 years ago than it was since the 19th century when these privileged, largely white classes started insisting, no, 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 no. Only the right people must come to the theater and they must behave in a certain way. Yeah, of course, as per your argument in your post. Yes, Hi, I'm Mike Collins, host of Charlotte Talks on 90.7 WFAE in Charlotte, and you're listening to the Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. Where can you RSC the RSC? This fall of 2023, we'll be performing the complete history of comedy abridged and the ultimate Christmas show abridged around the country. Check out the touring page at our website, ReducedShakespeare.com, or our Facebook page or Twitter feed at Reduced for the latest information. And now back to my conversation with Kirsty Sedgman, talking about her new book on being unreasonable, breaking the rules, and making things better. two competing truths here that I have to be really careful about managing. Mm -hmm. One is that nobody is saying that being quiet is a middle class norm or that only middle class people, only white people know how to be polite or show respect. Mm -hmm. Obviously that is not the case. That itself is absolutely classist and racist and deeply patronizing. Mm -hmm. But it is also true that that norm of reverent silence in the arts came from a particular time and place. And that was, the TLDR is, it came from the culture and civilization campaigns. In the 19th century, mass migration to urban centers caused by rapid industrialization meant that elites started to panic because they saw a whole mass of different people in their social spaces and they believed that society was breaking down and falling into anarchy. 
And part of what I look at is the tremendous influence of people like Matthew Arnold, who was the kind of cultural critic and polemicist. And he did a cross-Atlantic lecture tour where he toured Europe and the US. And he said, it's okay, we have an antidote to this anarchic uprising, and that is culture, the best that has been thought or said in the world. And we can use those brilliant, beautiful, powerful cultural experiences to civilize the masses, but only if the masses learn how to behave in the right way. So we might not have meant to, but that was the point where working class audiences, by and large, got excluded from the arts. And this was absolutely another irrefutable truth is that this mode of thinking was bound up in white supremacist colonial campaigns to culture and civilize the world. So we need to think really carefully and critically about where these norms came from in the first place. Mm -hmm. Well, and I love how you juggle um, competing truths. You know, these are complicated things to think about, you know, and, and many, many things can be can be true in this. I mean, it sounds like uh, it, it, it's very much aligned with um, Congressman John Lewis's saying that uh, talking about good trouble. You know, this this being unreasonable and getting into good trouble wakes up people, <laughs> lets them know, and lets makes them think about, oh, maybe what we've maybe all these assumptions I've had my entire life aren't the greatest. Absolutely. And that is the core of unbeing unreasonable, because in the conclusion, I draw a distinction between I'm going to make sure I get these the right way around the unreasonably reasonable people who are often centrist moderates, Mm -hmm. the people that um, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King called out Mm -hmm. specifically, who are so attached to the appearance of being reasonable polite voices, calm discussions, that they can't see that actually those things are sometimes advancing deeply immoral and unreasonable ideas, injustice and unfairness, entrenching those things in the heart of society because they seem or are made to seem reasonable. And what we need, history tells us, this is not just me, I promise. In fact, there are hundreds of citations in the book to brilliant thinkers throughout the decades and centuries who've argued exactly this. Sometimes what we need are the reasonably unreasonable people, not the unreasonably unreasonable, not the people who just want to do whatever they want and smash things up so that it benefits them. But reasonably unreasonable people are those who are truly fighting for a better world, even if it means breaking the rules or even the law. And I draw on a as I said, a vast array of thinkers, people like Howard Zinn, who talked about how civil obedience and civil disobedience, the narratives are topsy-turvy. And the law is topsy-turvy because it is the plague of the people, he said. So when the law is working in the interests of the powerful and harming the rest of us, then perhaps obedience to the law is the true social evil, the thing we need to fight back against. It's not easy to get people to buy books, I'm finding. Mm. What people want is to get you on Twitter and to go, no, explain your thinking over and over and over, hand-selling your book to me as an individual. And then when you're done, they go, great, I don't need to buy it now. Got a good sense of it, thanks. Ah, it's a good um, 
Well, and this is and this is what I love about your presence on Twitter. You're very funny. You're not a polemicist, <laughs> you know. Or if you are, you're an amusing one. <laughs> the book has some funny anecdotes scattered throughout it. I'm sure it does. <laughs> People will find them funny. My husband, who is not definitely not the butt of the joke, all the jokes are against me. They expose how terrible a wife I am and how he is really the true reasonable man. But everything has been passed through him pre-publication. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, except for one more thing, which I'll share with you in about 60 seconds, so stick around. Kirsty Sedgman's new book on being unreasonable, breaking the rules, and making things better is available right now in the UK and will be published in the US next month. Send us the good trouble you're causing via email to feedback at reducedshakespeare.com or throw a comment to us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram or on our own actual website, reducedshakespeare.com or visit my website, theshakespeareans.com. You can also follow Dr. Sedgman's fierce and funny Twitter feed at Kirsty Sedgman. Thanks as always to unreason personified Matthew Croak, Web services by Ginger Power Limited. Music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Andy Bryant. No reason, it's just random. Special thanks to Mike Collins, who we did not get to see when we performed in Charlotte last weekend. And as always, thanks very much to you for listening. Please continue to stay safe and keep your masks on. I'm Austin Titchener, 867-2601sts of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. I mean, I am a theatre person. It's my yeah. bread and butter and lifeblood. But yeah. the reason I study audiences is because they're a window into these much bigger social questions. But it's not a promise. It's not some kind of forced thing. This is not my, I'll make some money now. This is the natural extension of everything that I've been thinking about. This is why studying theatre matters, because this is the stuff that I teach my students. I talk about the world and society and politics and philosophy and sociology through the lens of theatre and what yeah. we can understand yeah. about togetherness through being together in public space. Yeah. Well, and 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 because of the problems, theatre, so many theatres are closing and uh, people are having with attendance, I'm finally beginning to hear other theatre makers and professors say the thing that I've been arguing for 15 years, which is that as theater teachers, we need to be training the next, not just the next generation of theater makers, but the next generation of theater goers yes. and theater funders and theater board members, the theater audiences. Absolutely. Yeah. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company, reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.